This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you along for another broadcast. I want to talk just for a few minutes about this Josh Hawley speech that was given on the Senate floor just this week. I was so happy to hear some of what he had to say, and I want to play some excerpts from that great speech. It was about 13 and a half minutes long. We've just boiled down some of the key points from that speech. But the essence of what he was talking about was the aftermath of the Bostock decision, which came down from the Supreme Court, as you know, just a few days ago where you had the high court legislating. They no longer have to just interpret the law. They can just make it. They can just make it. And it's a textualist perspective. Some of the stuff I'm reading on this is insane. And of course, the ire of a lot of conservatives and conservative Christians is directed at Neil Gorsuch, who wrote the majority opinion in this case. This guy who we were all told was a good conservative and an originalist and President Trump appointed him and boy, he's going to be great. And now we're saying, if this is what we get, from conservative judges, what is the point anymore? I've heard a lot of people talking that way, and I have to admit that I've talked that way a little bit in the last 24 to 48 hours, so I'm going to get into that a little bit. But first, before I do, I want you to hear a little bit of what Josh Hawley had to say. Listen to cut one. This decision, this Bostock case, and the majority who wrote it, it represents the end of something. It represents the end of the conservative legal movement or the conservative legal project as we know it. After Bostock, that effort as we know it, as it has existed up to now, it's over. And I say this because if textualism and originalism give you this decision, if you can invoke textualism and originalism in order to reach a decision, an outcome, that fundamentally changes the scope and meaning and application of statutory law, then textualism and originalism and all of those phrases don't mean much at all. And if those are the things that we've been fighting for, it's what I thought we had been fighting for. Those of us who call ourselves legal conservatives, if, if we've been fighting for originalism and textualism and this is the result of that, then I have to say, it turns out we haven't been fighting for very much, or maybe we've been fighting for quite a lot, but it's been exactly the opposite of what we thought we were fighting for. Now this is a very significant decision and it marks a turning point for every conservative and it marks a turning point for the legal conservative movement. I agree with him there because I think Daniel Greenfield over at Front Page Mag makes a very good point. When words don't mean anything, rights don't mean anything. Didn't we see this with the Obergefell decision just five years ago? Anthony Kennedy opining that dignity Dignity is why you should allow two men to get married. Dignity is why you should allow two women to get married, quote unquote. It's not real marriage. It's made up marriage. It's fictitious marriage. And we're all scratching our heads saying, when did the rules of the game change? And we all ended up in an insane asylum. Where does the Constitution give you any right to do what you just did, Supreme Court? And we had 32 some states that had already protected marriage in their constitutions. And everybody just yawned and moved on. Oh, well. 
five elected judges said that we have to do this. So unelected judges. Yeah, just move on. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, what just happened here? And now we've had another moment of insanity where the Supreme Court can declare that sex now means sexual orientation and gender identity, which are made up terms of recent origin that open Pandora's box even further than Obergefell did. And my question has been, when are Christian conservatives going to have a moment of reality with the GOP and say, you're either with Big Gay or you're with us? Because that's what I think needs to happen. Now, I don't want to interrupt myself too much because I want you to hear the rest of what Josh Hawley had to say. Let's go to cut two. The Legal Conservative Project has always depended on one group of people in particular in order to carry the weight of the votes, to actually support this out in public, to, to get out there and make it possible electorally. And those are religious conservatives. Now, I am one myself. Evangelicals, conservative Catholics, conservative Jews, they're the ones, let's be honest, they're the ones who have been the core of the legal conservative effort. And, and the reason for that is, it dates back decades now, back to the 1970s, the reason for that is, these religious conservatives from different backgrounds, but what they have consistently sought together was protection for their right to worship, for their right to freely exercise their faith as the First Amendment guarantees, for their right to gather in their communities, for their right to pursue the way of life that their scriptures variously command and that the Constitution absolutely protects. That's what they have asked for. That's what they have sought all these years. But as to those religious conservatives, how do they fare in yesterday's decision? What will this decision mean, this rewrite of Title VII? What will it mean for churches? What will it mean for religious schools? What will it mean for religious charities? Nothing good. It's going to be terrible. There are going to be terrible implications for churches and religious organizations and schools and charities. It's going to be a bloodbath for us. Not literally. It, it will be a bloodbath. I'm telling you, it's coming. Then he takes Congress to task. This part is good. Catherine. It is difficult to anticipate, in, in one case, all future possible implications. That's why courts are supposed to leave legislating to legislators. That's why Article 3 does not give the United States Supreme Court or any federal court the power to legislate, but only the judicial power to decide cases and controversies, not to decide policies. But I will also say this, that everybody knows, every honest person knows, that the laws in this country today, they're made almost entirely by unelected bureaucrats and courts. They're not made by this body. Why not? Because this body doesn't want to make law. That's why not. Because in order to make law, you have to take a vote. In order to vote, you have to be on the record. And to be on the record is to be held accountable. And that's what this body fears above all else, Madam President. This body is terrified of being held accountable for anything on any subject. So can we be so surprised that where the legislature fears to tread, where the Article I body, this this body that is charged with the Constitution for legislating, refuses to do its job, courts rush in, and bureaucrats too. Are they accountable to the people? No, not at all. Do we have any recourse? Not really. Now what must we do? Well, now we must wait to see what the super legislators will say about our rights in future cases. Well, let me read to you an example of this. Senate Majority Whip John Thune had this to say about the decision. It demonstrated Gorsuch's independence. The country's obviously changed a lot on that issue, and I assume that he looked at the facts and the law, and that's the conclusion he came to. And that's what, when we nominated him and confirmed him, we wanted him to do. 
That's the conservative. That's the Republican saying this. The Senate Majority Whip and their other quotes, Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican from Iowa. It's the law of the land and it probably makes uniform what a lot of states have already done and probably negates Congress's necessity for acting. That's pathetic. You know, the left plays for keeps. Have you noticed this? It's kind of an obvious statement, but the left plays for keeps. The left is relentless against their side and their politicians, and they will not hesitate to make sure that they get as radical a person in office as they need to in order to advance their agenda. Big gay and everybody else on the left. Those people hold their own accountable such that they have purged the Democratic Party almost to a man of anybody reasonable. But what's happening on the right? Oh, we know we're going to win because we got those conservative Christians in our camp. What are what are they really doing? Yes, there have been some very good moves by President Trump on religious liberty. Yes, there have been wonderful moves by President Trump on the pro-life issue. Yes, if you don't have both houses of Congress, you are limited on what you're actually able to get done legislatively. But Hawley makes a very important point, which is the Congress is they don't care. They don't care if the court makes the decision because then it makes it easier for them. They don't want to have to come back to evangelicals and say, yeah, okay, well, we passed this law that was favorable to big gay, but please vote for us in November. This is a huge problem, guys, which Holly gets to. Cut four. This outcome is not acceptable, and the bargain which religious conservatives have been offered is not tenable. So I would just say it's not time for religious conservatives to shut up. And we've done that for too long. No, it's time for religious conservatives to stand up and to speak out. It's time for religious conservatives to bring forward the best of our ideas on every policy affecting this nation. I agree with him. And I go back to my original point, which I will expand on in subsequent broadcasts. But I do believe it's time for evangelicals to say you're either with the big gay agenda or you're with us. But we're not going to take your little crumbs from the table and be all happy about it when you won't appoint judges who actually will do what they need to do when they're on the bench. Come on already. We'll come back. Stay with us. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT.
The Ministry of Preborn is dedicated to helping save preborn babies from abortion through ultrasound, and even in this time of national crisis, preborn is there. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn. No college classes and sheltering in have led to an explosion of unplanned pregnancies. Women are panicked about their pregnancies and wanting to abort. Our crisis line is the busiest it's ever been. Here's Catherine, one of our crisis line operators. Girls are scared and often seeking abortion as an easy way out. Girls are often desperate being pregnant in this pandemic. With your help, we are able to be here for them. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Call 855-402-BABY. Thank you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. The California State Assembly recently passed a bill repealing the state's ban on affirmative action. It's called ACA 5, and the bill nullifies Proposition 209, which was adopted by voters in 1996 to prohibit the state from engaging in preferential treatment based on race or sex. Now, the text of the bill says that ACA 5 is meant to address issues of inequality in the state that occurred when its equal opportunity program was upended, quote unquote, by Proposition 209. But what is the truth? We're going to find out from Gail Harriet, law professor at the University of San Diego and a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. She co-chaired the Yes on Proposition 209 campaign in 1996 and has written a great piece over at Real Clear Politics on the harm that will be done to students by undoing the ban on race and sex-based preferences. Professor Harriet, wonderful to have you with us. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm glad to talk to you because I'm sure there are many people who would be very interested in this story and have not seen a lot about it out there. But tell us a little bit about what's going on with the California State Assembly and this push to get rid of Proposition 209. Well, they're trying to repeal it. Uh, The state Senate hasn't hasn't weighed in yet, so we'll see what happens there. And then it has to be referred to the people for a vote in November. Right. Um, but, you know, that would be a very, very expensive and divisive thing. So we're hoping the Senate will kill this. Uh, we'll see. Uh, and as you were saying, you know, the important thing about this is that it really would not benefit minority students to go back to the old system where the University of California papered over problems at the K through 12 level um, by giving preferences to students, African Americans, Hispanics, American Indians, who are said to be underrepresented uh, at the University of California. You know, it really shouldn't surprise anyone um, that students do best uh, when they're in a situation where they're competitive, where their academic credentials put them in the same ballpark, you know, with the rest of the students. There has been so much research in this area now. Uh, We know um, that for students to succeed in science and engineering, they really need to go to a school where they didn't get preferential treatment. Uh, And I'm not just talking about, about racial minorities here, of course. The original research in this area was back in the 1960s, and the students getting preferential treatment were legacy students. Uh, that is, the, the, the children of alumni or very wealthy donors. And they were less likely to go on to high-prestige careers uh, if they were given preferential treatment than if they'd gone to a school a little bit lower in the pecking order, uh, but where they felt competitive, where they could do well. 
Right. Well, this is interesting because going back to how California's universities used the spoil system, as it were, uh, before Proposition 209, what went on that was so problematic that made voters say, we got to end this? Oh, my. Um, They were giving preferential treatment to African-American, Hispanic, and American Indian students. Uh, And by the way, they weren't all disadvantaged. Many of these, uh, in fact, most uh, of the students uh, were from uh, reasonably prosperous families, very often upper middle class and sometimes upper, upper income, quite wealthy parents. Um, so the way it worked, uh, you know, you could be the African-American son, you know, of, of two, two investment bankers um, and you'd get a preference. Uh, on the other hand, the Asian-American daughter of a dishwasher uh, was not getting that racial preference, was not getting that big bump because, uh, as they, they put it at the time, uh, they had, quote, too many Asians, which I thought was just a shocking thing to say. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So that's yeah. what was going on here, and, and California put a stop to it in 1996. Uh, it passed by a very comfortable margin, um, and, you know, it's something that I think has done great things for the University of California. Research has been done, and it shows that... Um, African-American, Hispanic, and, and American Indian students increased um, their, their graduation rates as a result of Proposition 209. They increased their grade point averages in college, uh, and they increased the number of, of, of students who would successfully major in science and engineering. Mm-hmm. They did all three of those things at the same time, and that's because students were going to schools where their, their entering credentials um, made them competitive with the other students. Right. So in other words, they weren't in a situation where they had been admitted based on perhaps their status uh, racially, uh, but, but then they ended up in a school that perhaps was not suited for their actual academic ability. And therefore, when they ended up at schools where it was more in line with their academic ability, they achieved much greater academic success and graduation rates, as you've just mentioned. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a success, but, but you know, given the current situation and given that we have a, a legislature here in California uh, that leans very heavily to the left, um, you know, that's now in danger. Sure. Um, all that's been accomplished is in danger. Well, and, and this is the other side of the equation, obviously. When you are having race and sex-based preferences going on in universities, for example, there are people who are hurt on the opposite end, right? So you have people who are left out of the equation. You mentioned some Asian-American students as an example who might have been more qualified, perhaps, for a particular position, but were left out because those preferences came before actual maybe test scores or grades. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And as a result here in California, the Asian American community is particularly upset about this because they know that they are the group that's going to suffer most. Um, That all across the country, there are universities um, that make it especially tough uh, on Asian students. Um, And these are Asian American students. These are Americans. Yes. Um, And it's being it's being made more difficult for them to get into to uh, top universities, even though their grades uh, and standardized test scores and their extracurricular activities, you know, are, are, you know, off the charts great. Uh, And it's just not fair. Yeah. Do you see, because I know that you mentioned this in your piece, the fact of the timing of the California Assembly moving ahead now to try to repeal Proposition 209, do you think that they're benefiting from the lockdown, for example, because it prevents people from being able to mobilize as easily against it? 
Oh, oh yes, I, I think that's part of what's going on here. Um, it has been very difficult to contact uh, assembly members, state senators. Uh, we can't go and just walk into an office. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and it's difficult to email. Uh, right now, um, there is a call-in at a hearing before the state senate, uh, and people can't get through. Um, wow. I, I've, I've spoken to some people just in the last few minutes who are saying we can't get through, we can't get through. Um, it's very difficult um, to, to, to connect. And, you know, it, it's not possible that these members of the legislature are in a good position to gauge, you know, the issues here or to gauge what their constituents think. Um, the, you know, the, the research I've just been talking about is very complicated. Uh, and instead, the Senate, the Senate hearing uh, allowed the opponents of, of this bill only three minutes to speak. Um, and like, it can't be discussed in three minutes. It's too, no. it's too complicated. They need to understand this because this is going to be a disaster for minority students. Well, it would be. And it's very troubling to see there, there's not more good faith effort on the part of the assembly to actually engage with the citizenry. This seems to be something that's been an ongoing problem in California, but it certainly isn't helping the citizens because, as you mentioned, there are a lot of people in California who understand the really sound reasoning behind what you're talking about, that it wouldn't work. And it would seem that there's also a political benefit for them because you have so many leftists in the California Assembly who are taking advantage in addition to this whole moment when race is on the front page all the time. Well, we'll, we'll do this because this is a maybe an opportune moment to do anything that smacks of diversity, whether it's good for California students or not. Exactly. And, you know, what really bothers me uh, is that if they do in, indeed succeed in repealing Prop 209, uh, the, the group that, that actually, you know, will get into the University of California that wouldn't otherwise is basically a high-income group. Um, Prop 209 allows, you know, a little extra thumb on the scale in favor of somebody who's, who's really economically um, or socially disadvantaged, as long as it's done so without regard to race. Yeah. Uh, and the whole reason we have public universities is to make sure that a college education is available to people regardless um, of whether or not they happen to be high income. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, as long as they don't go so overboard uh, that they end up creating mismatch uh, for people who are, are, you know, just happen to be, um, you know, born to, to parents who, who um, you know, don't make a lot of money, uh, haven't been to college themselves. Um, so, you know, all of that is a possible thing under Prop 209. Prop 209 is basically, you know, it bans race, uh, race, ethnicity, and national origin, uh, as well as sex as yes. a basis uh, for making decisions. And that strikes me as, you know, that's what, that's what our country is supposed to be about. Um, and I'm hoping that state senators will, will see the light on this. Uh, what we need to do is persuade uh, at least three uh, Democratic senators uh, to either abstain or to vote no. Right. Uh, and that has turned out to be very, very, very difficult. Just contacting, as you were talking about, just getting a hold of, of, a, of a, a state senator in California. Well, that's frustrating. Uh, is, is a major effort. Well, right. And people need to continue in the state of California to try to get through and voice their opinions. You know, that on the sex angle, though, it kind of jars my memory here because when you're talking about taking away preferential treatment based on sex, hey, as of this week, we have a whole new definition of sex, according to the Supreme Court. So that could go <laughs> anyway, wouldn't it? I mean, that, that could be a wonderful new trailblazing activity that they could put into place. You know, it, it, it's with that new Supreme Court decision, um, you know, it, it really does add some confusion to the issue here, yeah. here in California. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll see what comes of that. But, but um, 
at any rate, um, I do hope that we can get through to state, state senators, uh, and I hope that your California listeners uh, will will call their state senator um, and say, hey, this is a bad idea. Right. Do it. When are they they're supposed to do this within the next several days? Am I right? When is the actual vote going to take place? Do we know? We don't know. We don't know. They have a deadline. Uh, it's not an absolute deadline of June 25th. Okay. Uh, but if you've got listeners who are inclined to call their state senator sooner rather than later, uh, I think is the time to do it. Yeah, I think that that's really good advice because, you know, th- this is how things get really slimy as they begin to do things behind the scenes and people's attention is elsewhere, especially nowadays because there's so much on the news to pay attention to. And this is a very important subject, especially listeners in California. Make sure you contact Contact your state senator and say, no, we don't want to repeal Proposition 209. Professor Gail Harriet, thank you so much for being with us. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Janet. All right. You take care. We'll be right back. Stay with us. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, it's been bad enough to see thousands of churches closed during the pandemic shutdowns, but it's been absolutely maddening to see that abortion clinics have been allowed to stay open. Not only that, but as the Washington Examiner recently reported, 37 Planned Parenthood affiliates applied for and received nearly $80 million in federal funding from the Paycheck Protection Program, which was created to aid struggling small businesses and organizations throughout the pandemic. Well, just north of Chicago, where the lockdown has been a especially draconian, a brand new Planned Parenthood abortion clinic has actually opened up recently in the suburb of Waukegan. But my next guest was recently there, along with about 400 other great pro-lifers to protest the opening of the clinic. And there are more plans afoot to stand for life, which is so great. And we're going to talk about it now with Eric Scheidler, executive director of the Pro-Life Action League. Eric, so good to have you here. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, great to be back with you. Well, thank you. So Pro-Life Action League, I know, had a protest outside this Planned Parenthood. I'm sure there are a lot of listeners saying, why is an abortion clinic allowed to open up during a pandemic? What, what is going on here in Waukegan? Well, it's particularly outrageous when you consider that Planned Parenthood has been taking money designed to keep businesses from shutting their doors forever. Yeah. And they are opening new facilities right in the midst of taking that kind of money, right in the midst of a pandemic, right when healthcare facilities especially are places of transmission. Now, we've been calling on the governors and the attorneys general and departments of health across the country to shut down abortion facilities. I mean, we want to stop abortion no matter what, but in the midst of a pandemic, it's outrageous that abortion is considered an essential service that needs to be kept open. And some states have responded to that, and we've been in some battles to try to, to get those laws to be enforced. But here in Illinois, it's a very friendly atmosphere for the abortion industry, so much so that Planned Parenthood has repeatedly 
been able to open abortion facilities while hiding their identity, while keeping the community from knowing who they are. And even in the middle of, of an international pandemic, they are opening a new abortion facility in Waukegan, a suburb of Chicago that is particularly um, uh, noted for having a very large Hispanic population. Yeah. Um, you know, the largest churches there are, you know, are Spanish-speaking or have Spanish and English um, worship services and so forth. So, you know, here's Planned Parenthood targeting minority communities, minority communities which are, are being hit harder than any others by the, the lockdowns, the economic turndown, and the pandemic itself. So it's a particularly outrageous activity by Planned Parenthood. Well, it is. This has kind of been their M.O., though, for the last several years, has it not? They open up these big urban abortion clinic centers so they can prey really on minority clients. This is something they've used as a very successful strategy because they want their blood money. Especially in Illinois, there are now three different abortion facilities in the state of Illinois that are positioned right next to the borders of other states. Uh, down in Fairview Heights, right outside of St. Louis, they're aborting babies from from uh, Missouri and from Tennessee, Kentucky, at the uh, Flossmoor facility that opened up a couple of years ago, right over the Indiana border. Yep. They're aborting babies from Indiana and, and uh, Michigan, and now in Waukegan, they're targeting babies, uh, unborn babies from Wisconsin. So Illinois has become the kind of abortion dumping ground of the entire middle part of the country. That's disgusting. Yeah, you mentioned the Fairview Heights Clinic, and that was when that facility was constructed under a fake name, which it sounds like is exactly what happened in Waukegan. But how do they pull that off? What do they do to get away with that? Well, they're using laws that were organized to make it easy for businesses to expand and to get into new areas and to consolidate. And, and so they're able to use these sort of shell companies in order to hide who they are. And in many cases, they flat out lie to the local authorities. That's what they did in Aurora, Illinois, um, almost uh, 13 years ago when they opened the first of their mega centers, as we call them. You know, they flat out lied and said, yeah, we don't know. We're just building a building for doctor's offices. Maybe we'll get some tenants. We're not sure, we, you know. And the whole time it was Planned Parenthood. Everyone operating was Planned Parenthood. I've seen the emails because we are able to acquire these documents uh, I've seen the emails where Planned Parenthood officials are pretending that they don't know who they are. It's like, well, we're hoping to get a client for this building, and it's it's a lie. They know it's Planned Parenthood the whole time. You know, they play dumb and they trick local. And I think they deliberately pick communities where the local government is disorganized, isn't paying attention, where maybe there's other strains and focuses, uh, high crime areas, or more economically depressed. Um, that's certainly the case in Waukegan, Flossmoor, and Aurora, where they. Uh, use this scheme. So they are using um, the law and scheming and manipulating to, to get away with literally with murder. Is there a way to circumvent that, to close down that loophole by which they can deceive local communities in order to establish abortion facilities in, in other cities? We have tried so hard, Janet. We knew that Waukegan was in their sights. And so we had been sending Freedom of Information Act requests to various cities around the state. Uh, places like Elgin, Waukegan, um, cities where we thought they might want to go. And yet the local officials who are responsible for replying to those Freedom of Information Act requests have failed to supply documents they should have. So we've been trying to anticipate where they would go and, and do some investigation. But if we don't have the authorities on the other side doing their jobs, either through incompetence or through collaboration with Planned Parenthood, we don't know yet then we can't find out what's happening and we can't stop them earlier. We could have gotten a six-month head start fighting Planned Parenthood in Waukegan if the city of Waukegan hadn't failed 
to do their job. And we're looking at the possible recourse uh, through the law for them. That is horrible. Well, of course, you guys have passed this. It's not you, obviously, but, you know, Illinois has passed that radical abortion legislation just within the last couple of years. What sort of effect has that had on the ground when you're talking about young women going into these abortion clinics and, you know, all of the draconian parts of that legislation that are affecting a lot of people? Well, number one, they've opened up these new facilities. They knew that law was coming. They were fighting hard for it for a decade. I mean, it was a decade's battle yeah. to stop that, that Reproductive Health Act from passing. And we, we were victorious year after year after year until finally they were able to cobble together enough votes and confuse and, and deceive enough legislators that they were able to get that thing passed. So we've seen an expansion in the number of abortion facilities. Three abortion facilities have opened up uh, in the last year and a half in Illinois. We've seen droves of people coming from out of state to get abortions in Illinois, and we believe some of those abortions are being paid for with taxpayer money, people from other states, and even people who are not even documented uh, citizens or people with green cards. So undocumented folks are are getting abortions. We've seen the number of late-term abortions for out-of-state people go way up. So we're just beginning to get the numbers on what's happening here, but the overall effect is that Illinois is becoming abortion-central for the United States of America. That's disgusting. What is the significance of the Waukegan location being closer to Wisconsin? What is it about being near Wisconsin that is advantageous for them? Clearly, they would expect to get more clients, but is it a worse environment, in their opinion, yep. for women to be able to obtain uh, child slaughter <laughs> operations, if you want to call them that way, abortions in Wisconsin? Is that what the reason is for it? Exactly. Illinois is surrounded by states that have much tougher laws, where there's more oversight, where the state authorities are inspecting abortion facilities, where there's health and safety standards for these places. Um, Illinois has swept all that away. So the, the Planned Parenthood recognizes that if they want to really capitalize, they've got to take the, the the lack of oversight in Illinois and expand that to as many states as they can. So it's not just about getting clients from Wisconsin. It's about avoiding all of the laws in Wisconsin that they would have to adhere to if the abortions were done there. Right. Now, what about Missouri? Because when we talk about that that state, which is you know also near Illinois, uh, they had this situation. The last clinic there in Missouri uh, recently was allowed to continue providing yeah. abortions after the license was renewed. There was a whole long battle with the state's health department over that. What sort of ramifications do you believe that will have? Well, that was a horribly bad decision. You know, that was a battle, again, we were fighting for, for years to try to shut down that incredibly unsafe St. Louis Planned Parenthood Center. I mean, they were they were leaving baby body parts in women's bodies. Oh. They were going into shock. I mean, the incompetence. You know, the myth out there is that Planned Parenthood is the state of the art, that they have high, the highest quality health professionals working there, and nothing could be farther from the truth. Yeah, they know how to paint the walls of a building to make it look good. It's the classic whited sepulcher. I mean, on the mm-hmm. inside is death. So in St. Louis now, we've got the new facility in Illinois over in Fairview Heights, they're doing abortions there, and now they're able to ramp up the facility in St. Louis as well. Uh, fortunately, that particular facility has a fantastic opportunity for sidewalk counseling. It's located in such a way that our, our folks are able to be out there. So we're still out there offering help. That's but, great. Uh, real sad to see that place reopen. It is. We're going to pause. We'll take a quick break and come back with Eric Scheidler from Pro-Life Action League. Stay with us here on Janet Meffer today.
The Ministry of Preborn is dedicated to helping save preborn babies from abortion through ultrasound, and every day, preborn is on the front lines competing with Planned Parenthood for babies' lives. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn. Planned Parenthood, who generated recently over $190 million in net revenue, violated the terms of the payroll protection plan by taking over $80 million of COVID relief funds. Meanwhile, Preborn has received no government funding and many of our center's revenue is down. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, just call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, I have loved Pro-Life Action League for many, many years. Eric Scheidler, its executive director, is joining us now to kind of give us an update on what Planned Parenthood has been up to during this pandemic. Recently, an abortion facility opened up in Waukegan, a suburb of Chicago, north of Chicago, and they're trying to uh, you know, make sure that they can serve the Wisconsin clientele as well, uh, targeting poorer individuals, poorer clients, and taking advantage of minority communities. And you had mentioned, too, about the St. Louis Planned Parenthood Center, Eric, and mentioned that even though there has been a bad decision on that clinic being able to continue providing abortions, you've got great opportunities for sidewalk counseling. And I'm curious for you to tell us a little bit about what your volunteers have been doing as far as the counseling for women, not just in St. Louis, but also where you are in Chicago. Right. Well, we at the Pro-Life Action League, our, our number one focus is direct outreach to women entering abortion facilities. You know, we are, uh, when my father wrote his book, Closed, 99 Ways to Stop Abortion, Chapter 1 was called Sidewalk Counseling because it's the most important thing we can do. Be there where the death is taking place so we can offer a compassionate help. And every time Planned Parenthood opens up a new facility, we mobilize the community, we educate them about Planned Parenthood, and then we find those souls who are willing to join us on the front lines. That's what's happening in Waukegan. That group of 400 people who came out even during a pandemic to do a socially distancing protest, uh, that's going to be our foundation for building a pro-life community in Waukegan to reach out and offer help to those clients, especially you know Hispanic clients. Uh, we're expanding our Spanish language materials and, and outreach um, so that those babies can be safe from abortion there. But it's a work that constantly needs assistance. We need more and more volunteers, and not just around Chicago, but around the country. The Pro-Life actually is willing and ready and able to 
uh, equip anyone listening to this program to be a voice. Now, that may mean that you're called to, being called by God to go out and actually call out, reach out, speak, and have conversations with the, the women and, and their companions going into abortion facilities. It may mean that you're there to offer prayer support for those people. Maybe that kind of uh, uh, a direct outreach is, is not something you're called to do, but to be there in service in prayer, uh, and also in mourning, because we have to remember, um, these children... Are, are, are God's children. God forbid that any child die in this country, violent death at the hands of an abortionist, without someone there outside mourning for mm-hmm. their loss. Yes. We need to be there to give that gift to those children. And I think it makes God very happy when we're there to acknowledge the humanity of his children in that way. It's so important. What kind of reaction did you get when you did your protest in Waukegan? I saw some reports that there were some eggs thrown. Were they particularly hostile when you guys showed up? Well, it's funny because we did have some really nasty, uh, you know, things happen. There some, some folks were hit with eggs. There were a couple of water bottles and things thrown. But uh, the vast majority of the public out there were very, very supportive. I mean, we had so many car honks and thumbs ups, and, and people were really glad to see us. So there were a couple of bad eggs out there, so to speak. <laughs> but uh, for the most part, it was, it was a very positive response. And that was terribly encouraging to me because it suggested that uh, we are going to really be able to have an effective pro-life ongoing presence in Waukegan. That's good. Oh, it's so necessary. I mean, you're always needing new pro-life volunteers, obviously, because this you know, it just keeps dragging on. We wish that abortion would finally be made illegal, and we're still hoping and praying toward that end. But as you're comparing the status quo of the moment, Eric, against previous years of pro-life activism, how have you seen things change, if at all, in terms of, you know, just the reaction you get or the effectiveness of the techniques? Because clearly we've yeah. seen a shift a lot more pro-lifers in in the younger demographic but has there been much of a change over the years that stands out to you well i i think that people have become a little bit less hostile to the pro-life message and uh, and honestly i i my staff and i we often muse as to whether this is a, a matter of people shifting to a more pro-life position or whether they're becoming more disinterested in general uh, and less engaged with the world around them. Hmm. Uh, at times it seems like we're getting a more positive response. Other times it seems like there's more indifference. Um, so we're not always sure exactly what accounts for that change. Uh, but I do think that uh, the pro-life movement has, has been able to break into... Um, into a larger community. We've been able to, um, to kind of change the conversation. And I don't think there's as much hostility as there once was, in part because we've taken such a compassionate outreach approach yeah. out at the abortion facilities, and we've gotten really good at delivering our message to the American people in a way that they can hear and understand. And we talk in language that people get. We're able to talk about the life of the unborn child having value, how each and every one of us was once an unborn child. So more and more, we're really trying to kind of connect to people's own sense of of, of intimacy and excitement when it comes to the, the unborn children that they've known. You know, the picture of the ultrasound on the, mm-hmm. on the refrigerator door and connect that to the unborn child. Yeah, that's so great. that's been an effort at the Pro-Life Action League to, to kind of connect the, the sense of protection that we have towards children and babies and begin to apply that to the unborn child, too. So more and more, trying to humanize the unborn child has become a central focus. Well, it's such, a, such important work. And, you know, something else I want to mention for people who are not in Chicago, I know on June 26th, you'll be having your National Pro-Life Bridges Day. This is a wonderful event, third annual National Pro-Life Bridges Day in cities from coast to coast. Tell us a little bit about what's going to be going on on June 26th. 
Well, this is the ideal kind of a protest during a time of pandemic, during a time of lockdowns and stay-at-home orders, because we only need small teams. We've got um, around 50 teams lined up around the country of, of five to ten people who will be going out to highway overpasses on busy, busy highways and showing the message, abortion takes a human life, to over a million highway commuters on June 26th. We very carefully picked that message. It's one that people tend to agree with. It really resonates with people. Uh, and it's a reminder in the midst of this time that we're so focused on sacrificing to save lives. We're sharing sacrifices together to save lives. What can we sacrifice to save the lives of unborn children? Yeah. That's what we'll be inviting people to consider when we go out for National Pro-Life Bridges Day on June 22nd, oh. 20, uh, 26th. Yeah, this is going to be such a good event. I- I'm curious, too, because I know that, you know, here where I am in Texas, but I know back in Illinois, you guys have a little bit more draconian lockdown. Um, have you had any pushback on protesting during the shutdown? Any sort of problems that you've encountered, particularly because they say, well, in particular, pro-lifers shouldn't be out there. You might be damaging people's lives or potentially spreading the virus. Have you have you encountered any of that at all? We sure have. There have been. We've even had some pro-life activists arrested uh, when they were ministering outside of abortion facilities. Thankfully, that's pretty rare. But we've had some trouble with police along the way. Mm-hmm. We've had some trouble with the media, you know, kind of attacking us for this. But haven't we just seen over the last <laughs> few weeks that protest is important in our country? Yep. We've seen health experts coming out and saying, look, yeah, there's a pandemic, but it's important to protest injustice. <laughs> so we're, we're on the same page with that. There you go. <laughs> you know, we, we absolutely have to protest this injustice. We've been encouraging people all through the pandemic to stay active. You know, follow guidelines of safety. Uh, if it's conducive and it makes sense, wear a mask when you're out there. Um, you know, keep clean. If you're in a, a particularly vulnerable group, you know, maybe it's time to stay home for a little while. But we can't hide during this time. I mean, if, if the abortion facilities are going to be open, we have to be out there too. Yep. So yeah, there's been some pushback, but we've pushed back to ourselves. We've had our lo- lawyers on the case. They've been arguing and, and making the case again and again in various states that uh, the First Amendment has not been overturned and we're still allowed to get out there. And we have to because we owe it to these children to be there yeah. and speak out on their behalf. Well, and I've seen so many Christians say on the internet, for example, don't little black lives matter? If we're going to make it about black mm-hmm. lives, what about the lives of all those precious unborn black children? Children who never got to see the light of day because of abortion. This is kind of a good moment to be able to make that very important point. Yeah, unborn Black Lives Matter and black children, unborn black babies are being aborted at an astronomical rate, far outsized for, for the percent of the population that they are. So, you know, this should be a major concern, and it is for many leaders in the black community. Yeah. And it's something we're really dri- trying to drive home right now. Well, that's good. So what else do you have coming up? I know you always have many, many things coming. Uh, June 26, we mentioned the National Pro-Life Bridges Day is going to be taking place. You can check out prolifeaction.org for more information on that. But what other plans do you have in the works right now, Eric? Well, we're going to be hitting the streets of northern Illinois in July with our Face of Truth campaign, where we show these very moving pictures of abortion victims and connect those victims to, uh, you know, again, to people's own sense of protection for babies. One of our signs is of a, a, a little boy who was aborted at 15 weeks. And it's actually not a very gory sign at all. We tried to find a picture that was just really quite beautiful and, and yet still depicted the violence of abortion. And, and the caption on the sign says, this is his only baby picture, oh. you know, to try to connect that to people. They, they're putting up ultrasound pictures on their refrigerators. They're taking them to the office, posting them on Facebook. Well, here's a child whose only baby picture is an abortion. They were an abortion. Yeah. 
Um, so we're trying to really pull at people's heartstrings and, and, and try to show them that unborn children are our brothers and sisters. So that's one of our campaigns coming up next month. Um, and we're going to be, um, all through the fall, we're going to be trying to memorialize these children. In September, we have a very important event called the National Day of Remembrance for Aborted Children. Yes. And, and for the first year, we'll be going to the gravesite of the babies that were killed by Erlert Klopfer and hoarded in his home and in his car. Oh, so my. We are always on the move and always coming up with new ways to, to humanize these children. Good, when they are humans. Eric Scheidler from the Pro-Life Action League. Check them out at prolifeaction.org. Eric, God bless you and your wonderful team. Thank you so much for the update. It's been an honor. God All right. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, too, for joining us on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.